Hi, I'm Evacheska DeAngelis, and I am here to welcome you to our internet radio broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Mind, Body, Health, and Politics brings you wide-ranging, uncensored conversations containing up-to-date information with prominent, nationally acclaimed authorities, scientists, and best-selling authors. We feature a wide variety of topics ranging from psychedelic science, expanding consciousness, mental and physical health, human sexuality, the environment, social justice, and much more. This program has been hosted by my father, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, for 20 years, and we continue to broadcast because you listen. So please give us your support by subscribing free of charge at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and joining our growing community. And now, here's my dad and today's guest. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being, and encourage community. And I say encourage community because community is so important and because I believe that human beings are basically friendly tribal animals. We like associating with one another. We enjoy collaborating. We enjoy cooperating. And we like doing all kinds of things together be it in a sewing circle or a poker game, a football game or a book study class, or eating. Oh my gosh, do we love eating together, just sitting around in circles and eating. Nowadays, some people enjoy sitting around together and taking various psychedelic medicines. The world is changing, but we like doing things together and cooperating. However, and this is the caveat, we must remember that there's a very small percentage of us who are very different. These people are not cooperators and collaborators. These people would be and are dictators. These people are the ones when we came out of the caves who had the biggest club. And as they clubbed their way up the cycle, they eventually became tribal leaders and eventually they gave themselves the names kings. And what do you think kings had below them? Subjects, not citizens. Eventually, these kings made a great pact with the church. And what happened then? The kings were appointed, ah, by domain providence, divine providence. They were appointed so that if you went against the king, you were going against religion, a double sin, and off came your head. However, a couple of hundred years ago, for the first time since the Romans and the Greeks experimented with democracy and republic, we overthrew the king of England, King George, we said we are no longer subjects. We are now citizens, citizens in a democracy and a republic, a democracy, one person, one vote, a republic, everybody equal before the law. Our democracy and our republic is not a given, my dear friends. It's a fragile thing. It's an experiment. The Greeks lost their democracy and their republic, and so did the Romans. We could lose ours. It's our job to stay aware and to vote and to be active and to maintain our democracy and our republic. There are those right now poised to take over our country, and they would. One example of that is Trump. You know by his actions that he would prefer to be a dictator than really a president. There are other examples. Bolsonaro down in South America, Putin over in Russia, 
all over we have these people who would rather be dictators than presidents elected. I know these are very hard times, folks. I'm very aware of the fact that homelessness is on the rise. I'm extremely aware of the fact that we're going through an economic stratification where these people who would rule us are sucking up all the money at the top. I know that 70% of our country is suffering economically, but at the same time, folks, within the suffering, we must remain aware, we must vote, and we must maintain our democracy and our republic if we are going to continue to be citizens and not subjects. In the words of one of my great heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today, we have with us on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, our esteemed guest, Andres Gomez Emelson, who is a co-founder and director of the Qualia Institute. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Andres. Oh, thank you so much. Very, very happy to be here. (laughs) Andres, I told you before we started off air that I was going to start with a question. So now I'm going to ask the question that you already (laughs) know I'm going to ask. If anything could happen in this interview that would make your heart sing, what is the best thing that could happen in this interview if you have a magic wand? Because I'm telling you that whatever you say, almost, almost for sure, whatever you say you want to have happen, you're going to have my collaboration in making it happen. (laughs) Oh, amazing. Well, okay, so, I was thinking about it. There's obviously a lot of things I could I could I, I could want to have happen based on the frameworks that we explore at, at QRI. Probably I think the biggest what I call ethical arbitrage, meaning the biggest thing where with relatively few resources, relatively few coordination, we could improve the world massively, 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 is on a topic that is actually pretty unpleasant to think about, but I think ethically really necessary. And that is essentially gaining traction and resources and power behind the task of enabling the use of psychedelics for people who suffer from cluster headaches. I mean, essentially, for a brief context, cluster headaches, one in a thousand people suffer from them, and they're essentially about as as painful as it gets. So they're like maybe 10 times or 50 times more painful than amputation without uh, anesthesia. You know, they're relatively common. And the crazy thing is that, you know, LSD, DMT, psilocybin uh, mushrooms actually abort those headaches and prevent them for weeks at a time in a way that it seems to be much more effective and reliable than the best available medicines and interventions. You know, this is the sort of thing that uh, if if one billionaire were to say, I want cluster headaches to be eradicated in the next five to 10 years, it's completely doable. It's completely doable. You know, it's within the realm of possibility. What we lack is essentially, yeah, the, the, the will and the power behind it to, to make that happen. So if I could, yeah, wave my magic wand, I think that probably would be my one wish <laughs> if, if I only have one. Yes. <laughs> so if I go to a billionaire that I have the privilege of knowing and I say, hey, I met this man, Andres Gomez Emelson. He tells me 3.3 million people in the United States are suffering mightily from migraine headaches, and this is very curable. What would I ask him to do with his billions of dollars? Tell me. Yeah, so there's there's a couple like very concrete things. One of them is we've got to essentially do a um, clinical trial of this application for DMT in particular. Essentially, DMT to us is the most promising way of tackling this because it's something you can 
essentially inhaling a vape, or there's like other ways of, of taking it very quickly. And he's going to abort the headache. According to the people we have interviewed, he used this, uh, this method. It could be as soon as like 10 seconds after you inhale. And you don't need very high doses. Actually, you can use very, very low doses, like up to like, you know, three milligrams. It's not even hallucinogenic. It's not a psychedelic dose. So the mechanism of action may not actually be the psychedelic component, maybe just, you know, other receptor <laughs> affinity. So essentially getting DMT through cl clinical trials, there's another drug, which is a non-psychoactive version of LSD uh, that also seems very, very promising in this domain. And then my best guess for how, how to introduce this to the world at large, maybe in parallel to the clinical trials, essentially would be to get in, you know, a, a Nordic country, potentially Finland or, or Sweden, who are, you know, much more easy to convince and coordinate around this. So essentially make a clause for essentially not criminalizing psychedelics for people who suffer from this condition, just kind of as, a, as an entryway. And I think when that happens in one of those countries, I, I do expect a domino effect, given just the vast amount of testimonials and yeah, essentially uh, <laughs> life-changing experiences that people will have based on this. Now, Andres, based on your interviewing of scientists, have you reached a conclusion that DMT, which is an extremely fast-acting and short-acting psychedelic, is the most effective for these cluster migraine headaches, or is psilocybin or MDMA also equally effective? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of like effectiveness, in terms of like actually preventing future headaches and getting rid of the current headache that you're having, as far as I know, you know, LSD, psilocybin, and DMT would be ranked as equally effective. MDMA doesn't work for this condition. And also, importantly, 5-MeO-DMT also doesn't seem to work for this condition. It actually, it's, it's probably a very terrible, very bad idea to use 5-MeO-DMT for this, because it will actually kind of, uh, kind of intensify it because it's, you'll be in a psychedelic state in addition to the, to, to the headache. The reason why I think DMT is the best is because it can take effect within seconds. So essentially, you know, because this condition is so dramatically painful, if you need to take mushrooms, it will take at least half an hour for it to start working. And in the meanwhile, you suffered for half an hour. Whereas with DMT, it just cuts through within seconds. And like, that's why we, we think of it as the most, you know, the, the, the biggest bang for your buck here. So what you're saying is you want to address the cluster migraine headaches physiologically, but not psychologically. So there's no psychotherapy needed. It's a matter of taking the medicine as a medicine and letting it do its thing physiologically to alleviate the pain and suffering from the cluster migraines, correct? Yeah, that is correct. Now, from a tactical point of view, I think you're barking up a difficult tree. <laughs> and I'm, I wouldn't dissuade you. It just means it's going to take you longer. And here's why I'm saying that. It's taken Rick Doblin 37 years to get close to the FDA approval of MDMA. While he's doing that, psilocybin is getting de decriminalized right across the United States. It's been decriminalized, as you well know, in Oakland, in San Francisco, in Denver, Colorado, the state of Oregon. And I hear now from Carlos Plazola 
who was so instrumental in the Oakland decriminalization that 12 other cities across the United States have already decriminalized psilocybin. Now, the thinking on this, as I understand it, Andres, is that the government is much less afraid of something that comes out of the ground, such as a mushroom, than they are something that comes out of a laboratory, such as DMT, MDMA, and LSD. And particularly LSD, of course, because it has all the baggage from the 60s and all that stuff that goes with it, which is ridiculous, but it's a function of the government's disinformation process that has sunk into the culture. So are you prepared for a, a, you look young enough to be prepared for a very lengthy, a very lengthy uh, siege. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I'm determined. I'm determined. <laughs> well, good, because, you know, Rick was Rick was in his early 30s when he started with MDMA. You know, now he's in his mid 60s, 37 years later. And you may be looking to that with DMT. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too surprised. If that happens, it would still be a, a huge success. <laughs> it, it would still be a huge success. Now, tell me something about the Qualia Institute. First of all, tell us something about the name. Where did you yeah. get it? What does it mean? I haven't had a chance to look it up, so I'm asking you. What does Absolutely. it mean? Well, so Qualia, it's uh, essentially one of my favorite words because it refers to something very, very intimate and very dear to all of us that most people don't even know there's a name for it. And so the analogy I, I often make is when you were a kid, I bet at some point you wondered, is the blue that I see the same blue that other people see, right? Like maybe the frequencies of light are the same, but is this sensation of blue the same? Like maybe you see, when I see something blue, maybe you see some, something that you would perceive as red, right? And how would we know? Like, is there any way to communicate kind of like that, that information of like the actual feeling of the color? So in philosophy, essentially that feeling of that color would be qualia. So we could talk about like the, the, the qualia of blue, the qualia of red, but also things such as like the qualia of sound and, and smell and even thought, you know, like the qualia of thought, like what does it feel like to think? So, you know, in, in, in academia, in philosophy of mind, in psychology, there's obviously a lot of research on things such as, you know, like memory, cognition, you know, like planning, judgment, things of that sort, learning. But very few people are actually really trying to understand the nature of consciousness itself. You know, there's like thousands and thousands of, 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 <laughs> of grants and, and papers, you know, every year on like new mechanisms for learning. Very, very little research on, hey, can we figure out like, what is it that is making the feeling of blue arise? And the reason we care so much about this, at least in our organization, is that what we think is the most important thing in the universe is actually a quail, a quailia. So essentially, this is the, um, the pleasure-pain axis, or what we call valence, which is how good or bad an experience feels. And essentially, we think that it's possible to model mathematically what makes an experience feel good or bad. So you could say, okay, at the Institute, we're very broadly interested in everything having to do with consciousness, you know, mapping out the state of the state space of consciousness, understanding every experience and what it does. But then within it, we're especially interested in what makes experiences feel good or bad. How does qualia differ from synesthesia? Yeah, yeah. So synesthesia, 
is where there's various kinds of synesthesia. Typically, it is something like whenever you hear a sound, there's a, a hue of a particular color that presents itself, you know, a particular right. note or something like that. So that would be like yeah. sound color synesthesia. But there, there's many varieties, right? Like, you know, touch, right. touch, smell, and et cetera, many pairings. So essentially, synesthesia is really, really a really good example, actually, of how the mapping between sensory stimuli and our experiences is essentially somewhat arbitrary. They're like, it, it, it's not a law of nature that light and visual input has to be experienced with visual qualia. Because in an extreme example, you could have somebody who's congenitally blind in the sense maybe they don't have a visual cortex, but they still have functioning eyes. And maybe the way they perceive the light around them is via sound. And that's a you know perfectly valid way of navigating the world. So what I'm getting at is that actually, in a sense, we're all synesthetic. It's just that we have an evolutionary adaptive type of synesthesia. And within kind of the context of qualia and qualia research, synesthesia would be an alternative mapping between sensory input and the qualia responses from those sensory inputs. Interesting that you mentioned blue, that you use blue as an example, because I did my doctoral research on the effects of chromatic and achromatic stimuli on pupil responsivity, <laughs> right? So I measured, I took thousands and thousands of photographs of people's pupils as I tachistoscopically presented them with various colors so that you could then see. So I was doing sort of an external measurement, external being the pupil of the eye being on the edge, whereas you're doing internal conscious mapping of what's going on inside. But I, I was taken with you picking blue because <laughs> my research indicated that blue is the universally most popular and acceptable color for people <laughs> in terms of the emotional response. In fact, after I did my research, when I went to my first postdoctoral interviews, I wore only blue. I blue socks, blue pants. I wore blue. I wore blue, blue, blue everything. <laughs> and yeah, I was a lot of. And I got the first job that I interviewed for too at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I was thrilled, and I always wondered if I would have worn a different color, maybe I wouldn't have gotten. <laughs> maybe I wouldn't have gotten the job. <laughs> so you're measure. You're mapping out the inside. Well, your your research has implications for something that I'm thinking about a great deal. And I want to share this with you and get your opinion on it, Andres. We have evolved from Neanderthals to Homo sapiens. And we as Homo sapiens, you know, have had a certain length of time to be here. But that doesn't mean we are the end in the evolutionary progression. There could be a form beyond us, and I'm sure there is, and there can be forms beyond that. And I'm thinking that the next form for us is that we're going to be able to download the information and the cognitive processing of our what we call our brain, the computer. We're going to be able to download that onto a chip. And so when we can take that chip and put it into a robot, the robots will be the next step in evolution. Because as we well know right now, Robots are being made so that they have feeling in their fingers, they can smell, they can see, they can hear, they can function. And then when we put this chip in, 
they'll have all they'll have what we are some people are calling AI artificial intelligence I don't call it that I call it creative intelligence I think artificial has a lot of baggage and it's a bad word we created this intelligence I call it CI creative intelligence and because what is it really it's a mass of data that we created there's nothing artificial about it why should we put that word on it so when we take our creative intelligence and put it on a chip inside a robot they will have the information but what they won't have is what you're working on which is consciousness yep. so you you sound like you may be on the very cutting edge because if you're going to be algorithmically measuring consciousness the step after that is you'll be able to put that consciousness onto a chip and add it to the robux database tell <laughs> talk tell me what you think of that theory what what's your opinion oh no this is this is absolutely core to what we're doing have i some... found a have i found a kindred spirit <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. I mean, like, you know, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be very, uh, very frank with you. I like, according to all of our theories, all of the current hardware that is being used for AI or or CI, as as you're, CI. you're calling it, CI, is not conscious, and it has to do with like the way the hardware is actually implemented. It's it's a it's a deep rabbit hole. It doesn't mean that it's impossible to create a conscious machine. I actually think it is possible, and there's like. A lot, of, a, a huge can of worms about like how to do it and whether we should do it and what under what conditions we should do it. One of the kind of like you know the front load the the the, the you know the the most core aspect of this conversation is we've got to make sure that whatever conscious intelligence we create is not suffering, right? Like we don't want to create a robot that is conscious and it's in a state of suffering, even if it's like very functional. You know, there's like people who are very functional, even though they're suffering <laughs> very deeply. Oh, yes. We don't, we don't want to do that to robots, right? We want them to be in a blissful state, you know, ideally being able to access, you know, heaven worlds, heaven states of consciousness, <laughs> which are very real. You know, they exist as uh, you, you probably know from yeah meditation or psychedelics. And essentially that is for me like the key constraint because, you know, even if I have like a blueprint for, okay, this is how you make a, a machine conscious, I wouldn't quite release it until I know how to make sure it's also not suffering, right? Because otherwise, yeah, people will just go wild <laughs> making it and, okay, maybe we will have like a, a new evolutionary step, but maybe it won't be free from suffering either. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, part of the whole, the whole kind of uh, point of uh, the initiative of quality of research is how do we have functional consciousness that is not suffering, essentially? How do you enhance well-being, minimize suffering? But, you know, on a very, very technical note, I do think it's actually possible to create conscious machines. It's going to be an enormous, enormous technical challenge. Also, a lot of people will be deceived by machines that are not conscious, but that look conscious. And that, that's, that's a whole problem as well. I mean, in fact, there's a whole possible future <laughs> where the world is taken over by machines that are in some sense actually smarter than us, at least in, in some ways, but in such a way that it can acquire full power and just, just uh, control humans. And that's, that's a very live possibility, unfortunately. So we're, we're I essentially, know you, yeah. I know what you're talking about. If you had machines that had algorithmic information, but without consciousness, then they would strictly work on total rationality. They would be like, the ultimate Socratic, uh, esophic people, right? 
there would be Seneca and Marcus Aurelius personified, um, <laughs> but without the consciousness. See, it would be total total rationality. I hear that's a very interesting point. And, and depending on how the information is put on the chip for them, they could be either difficult or or really or very rational and beautiful. But yep. you're talking about an added element and, and something I hadn't thought about before, really, which is two kinds of robots. Robots with information and cognitive processing without consciousness and robots with information, cognitive, cognitive processing and consciousness. And then yeah. you're adding into it the nature of the consciousness, because obviously if you throw in neuroses and psychoses, you could have some weird robots running around out there, right? That's what you're, impl- <laughs> isn't, that's what you're implying, isn't it? Yes. You, you, put, you put in some, some pathological consciousness, you're going to have pathological robots. Yeah, yeah. Very astute point on your part, sir. <laughs> it's very, very crucial. I mean, I think, I think it is one of the big bifurcations of the future is are the machines going to be conscious or not? And are they going to suffer or not? And I think like to, to, to go to a good future, we have to create machines that are conscious and they're actually also benevolent and blissful. And to get there, I think it's actually kind of uh, walking on, uh, on a ra- razor's edge. I mean, because there's, uh-huh. <laughs> there's problems on both sides. <laughs> well, if you listen to my introduction about cooperative people and those who would be dictators, yeah. if, if those who would be dictators got the say on the nature of the robots, we know what kind of robots they're going to make, right? They're going to make robots that are going to create oligarchy, even more oligarchy than we already have, and dictators at the top. Oh, yes. This is maybe tangential, but very related to your introduction. I, I mean, one of the most likely ways for a human extinction actually has to do with, the, the, you know, kind of like very, 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 uh, you know, egoic dictators going on nuclear war with each other because they have no way of de-escalating. <laughs> I mean, essentially, yeah, that's a, that's a very, very live possibility as well, which also, I guess, just to put this on a pin on this, another very huge benefit of our research, hopefully, will be to enable things such as MDMA-like states of consciousness, but that you can be in every day, you know, without, without tolerance uh, or neurotoxicity. <laughs> uh, and we think like that might help on the front of disabling dictators or something like that, or at least, or at least creating a very different social conditions that just don't give rise to that sort of power structure. It's, I, I want to take a sidebar here because, and, this, and then let's come back. Please bring me back to what we're talking about. But the sidebar is you use the word neurotoxicity as related to MDMA. Mm-hmm. I know of no research that indicates, I know of no good research that indicates neurotoxicity with MDMA. We, there's no question that there are spikes in blood pressure and spikes in heart rate within pretty reasonable parameters. But I don't know of any research regarding neurotoxicity. However, you are correct in that neurotoxicity has been associated with MDMA. And that's because of that terrible study by Riccardi about 20, 30 years ago, which, in which he showed those slides to the world of brain damage and neurotoxicity from MDMA until it was discovered that in his study, as you well know, I see you're shaking your head, he didn't use the MDMA. He used <laughs> yep. he used methamphetamine, which is known to create neurotoxicity. Yeah. But by the time he withdrew in a little tiny paragraph, until his results were withdrawn, 
the word of neurotoxicity with MDMA went around the world and got embedded in the consciousness. That was a piece of disinformation that was a gift or a curse that kept on cursing. And that's why, you know, I'm mentioning it even again uh, today. But now, back to consciousness. You use the word extinction. I think by doing your work and the work of downloading the information and the cognitive processing, as well as your work with consciousness, that is how we've attained immortality instead of extinction. Because even if we transition beyond these what I call the transporter, what it's referred to as a body. It's this thing that we all travel around in. Even if we move beyond this material body to a robotic body or some other kind of body, given that in time, before we move beyond the body, we've been able to amass and download the information and the consciousness, have we not achieved immortality? Yes, if, if, if the system is, is very robust, uh, for sure. If, and I think... <laughs> It's possible. It's very po- because you can make like very redundant copies, right? Like have lots of lots and lots of resources on making extra yeah. copies and uh, and safeguarding and uh, you know asteroid deflection programs could be actually also <laughs> carried out by by a creative intelligence. That's that's yes. not a problem. <laughs> yes. So how long do you have a rough any kind of rough guess? How many years or decades it's going to take for you to get to where you can. Down, measure and download consciousness? Hmm. I haven't thought that deeply about that. My, the main point in that respect is that with current architectures, if you were to download all of your synaptic connections and reproduce it on a CPU, according to our theory, it wouldn't be conscious. So unfortunately, that wouldn't work. But with conscious architectures, yes, it, it would be possible. I do think like you know, con- you know, consciousness downloading or mind uploading is is a uh, is possible. I would estimate probably thirty years. <laughs> That's the number. That was the number that came into my mind about thirty or forty years. Yeah. How old? How old are you? Thirty-two. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Ex God, you'll be there before you get on Medicare. <laughs> Andres, I am so excited. I've done a lot of interviews for 20 years, but I've got to tell you, this is one of the most exciting interviews I've ever done. <laughs> I am, I'm, I'm just thrilled to be hearing about the research that you're doing. Thank is, you. Thank is, you. <laughs> is any, uh, do you have other people that you know who are doing similar research on the planet, like that you, that you connect with and talk to? Or it, it's, it, is a, it is a mixed bag because there are people who are doing tangential things. You know, there's people interested in kind of electromagnetic theories of consciousness, like we are. There are people interested in reducing suffering. <laughs> and there's people interested on the heaven worlds and super pleasant experiences we're also very curious about. But as far as I know, only at QRI, we combine all of those interests in a package deal where we say, you know, things such as like, no, you know, accelerating consciousness research is not enough. We also need to steer it towards benevolence and reducing suffering. That is, that is, as far as I know, pretty unique to us. But there is a lot of interest. I mean, I would say also there's an enormous demand. Like, there's a, if we had a lot more funding, we, we could employ, you know, dozens, maybe hundreds of really top researchers who actually want to do this work, but they cannot do it because nobody's funding it in academia or in industry. So I, I sort of think it's a, a little bit of like there's a huge latent backlog of people who want to work on it. <laughs> they just don't have the conditions or the circumstances to be able to do it. The people at Google are not working on this, huh? No, no, not, not as far as I know. Uh-huh. 
Well, it's a long-range project, right? A 30-year project is a long-range project. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because when I say the long-range project, I immediately think of the Chinese because they're known for thinking long-range. Yeah. For having, for having, you know, very different than our mentality here where we've got to make a profit by next week or else we don't want to do business, right? The, <laughs> short, the short-term gratification. Yeah. It's a wonder. I was trying to read resources on, yeah, like making sense of what the Chinese are thinking with respect to consciousness. And it's very hard to, to figure out. They do have a disadvantage, which is that they didn't go through, you know, the counterculture of the 60s, right? Like so much of the sense-making capacity that we have in the West about consciousness is because we actually have all this cultural reference, you know, like Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, Alan Watts, John Lilly. I think they're actually load-bearing. Like even though, you know, most scientists don't think of them as like serious philosophers or whatever, at a cultural level, the fact that they exist, that there's books they wrote and so on, actually cements kind of like puts a flag, you know, says like, hey, there's something very valuable here. And uh-huh. and I don't think people in China have that, right? It, like, yeah. There's like a very, very, very tiny, you know, tiny, very hidden micro, micro counterculture that may take LSD and, and psilocybin, but they're not public about it. There's no sense making about it. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and draconian laws if they get caught. Do you yeah. also teach, do you also teach philosophy, Andres? <laughs> well, okay. So for context, yeah, the three disciplines we do at QRI is philosophy, especially philosophy of mind. Then we do neuroscience and neurotechnology. Those are kind of like our three, three layers of the things we're interested in. And actually, a lot of what we publish, our first pre-reviewed paper, just as an example, is a straight-up philosophy of mind paper. Yeah, it's all about like, it's very, very technical. It's like getting into like the various theories of consciousness and, and presenting ours and explaining what problems we see in others. So yeah, philosophy is Where did you publish? Essential. Where did you publish that paper? The journal is called Open Philosophy. Thank you. I want our listeners to know about it, and I'd like to read it myself. Yeah, the, the paper is called The Slicing Problem. Okay, so there are three things that, that you're doing, and, and you mentioned that one is this paper, An Open Mind, and uh, I'll be looking for it, or maybe you'll be kind enough to send me a link and make it easy for me to find it. And then neuro-research you're doing. Yeah, neuroscience. Now, yeah. Neuroscience. Now... Are you connecting in some way? Is what Elon is doing with Neuralink connected to what you're doing? I would say to some extent, yeah. Although even more on the philosophy front, and a note I could put here is that uh, with the research that people are doing at Neuralink, uh, the Elon Musk initiative for, for brain-computer interfaces, I think he could actually test some of the theories of consciousness. For example, like some electromagnetic theories of consciousness Th- that device could be used to test it. We we're not you know we're not collaborating with them. We are collaborating with other neuroscience labs, especially when it comes to the psychedelic research, which is a very big area <laughs> that we focus on. Uh-huh. Probably you know for context, the thing we are the most well known for, probably and probably by a big margin actually, is uh, mapping out the DMT space. So essentially, people take DMT and they go to very crazy, hyper-geometric, hyper-dimensional spaces. And they, they come back and they struggle to describe what they experienced because it's so complex, so such a diverse set of things that can happen. 
Uh, but what we did was essentially create a, uh, a map of what are all of the levels and what are the mathematical properties of each of the levels? What kind of mathematical objects you can encounter at each of the levels? And that is, uh, yeah, essentially something that um, we have that uh, I, I don't know anybody else who has done anything like it. I mean, there, there uh-huh. is like some people who have tried to map it and say some, some things like, okay, levels of intensity. But we have actually gotten to the point where we can say, you know, at the third level, you experience for example, three-dimensional crystals. And this is the mathematics for that. It's called space groups. At the fourth level, you experience hyperbolic geometry of three dimensions. And <laughs> the math corresponds to what's called hyperbolic honeycombs. So, you know, and, and, and to, to do this, you know, I've just been in contact with really bright mathematicians and physicists who are collaborating with us that explore these spaces. And we created a little community where we kind of... Uh, have a think tank approach to make sense of these states of consciousness. So, yes. So anyway, so all of that, you know, has been happening for the last si- seven years or something like that. Um, and now we're at a point where we can actually, you know, make predictions based on all of these models. And that's what we are collaborating with, with uh, various universities. I think I probably shouldn't mention the universities because I don't think our collaboration is yet quite public. But there, yeah, some pretty prestigious universities are going to be essentially test using our experiments uh, to test some of these predictions. Um, uh, and that's kind of like, yeah, the most interesting collaboration there. Um, and yeah, then the third, the third thing that we do is uh, neurotechnology, which is like using things such as like, it's, it sounds completely different, but essentially um, body vibration in order to create therapeutic, psychedelic-like experiences. Uh, without substances. That's a, another thing that we also investigate. <laughs> I want to be a subject in that a study. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> sign, just sign me up anytime. Now, are you, are you measuring external vibrations sort of similar to the galvanic skin response of measuring, you know, uh, waves across the external of the dermis or are you, where are the, uh, what, what part are you measuring? Where are you measuring the vibration? Well, 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 so the, on the neurotechnology front, it's not that we're measuring the vibrations. We are oh. applying vibrations. I see. Um, and, uh, but we apply vibrations that we have figured out are actually very similar to the kind of phenomenology or the reported vibrations from various states of consciousness. Um, so these I, are low-intensity vibrations. Yeah, I mean, it's are kind they? of a... You know, when you are like at a very loud concert and you're standing right next to a speaker and you get like also the body vibration. Yes, of course. It's more immersive. You know, it's it's a deeper, richer experience than just the audio, right? Um, Have so you experienced it yourself, Andres? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I've spent hours and hours using our device. and uh, Is it pretty and, phenomenal? Is, are you getting phenomenal results on yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, quite interesting. Like some people... I mean, it's quite similar to kind of like a standard dose of ketamine in terms of like how strange and fascinating it is. Um, isn't I mean, a high dose of ketamine is much more strange. I'm not going to say that we can replicate that, but like, you know, like, a, a, you know, like 60 milligrams of ketamine or something like that. Yes. Um, the device produces like interesting effects of that quality. And that's phenomenal. Now, what about uh, producing the kind of uh, egoic, material that we work on in psychedelics to improve ourselves as people, watching our own process, listening to our own communications, looking at our fears, 
Does it does it facilitate that as well? It does. So one frame that we have used, uh, this particular term came from a co-founder, uh, uh, Mike. Uh, he described it as like our device as an emotional co-processor. So think about it this way. If you have like a lot of traumas, if you have a lot of stored patterns of stress uh, that you cannot bring to the surface, there, part of the reason you cannot bring it to the surface is because there's a lot of viscosity and stuckness in the energy body, to use kind of the meditation lingo. Um, what psychedelics do and what our device also does is it raises the energy, what we call the energy parameter, to such a level where it actually melts and it becomes less stuck. So it doesn't mean it automatically gets rid of the stress, but it means the stress can come to the surface and you work, can massage it and, and, and work it out. And you know, if there's one very big insight from uh, meditation that I could, I could share, um, and many other people have discovered this, is that every kind of you know, craving, every kind of uh, psychological trauma or stress always has a corresponding knot or, or stress point in the energy body. Right, like every kind of trauma that you have, the, how you heal it ultimately involves bringing the stress to the surface and mas massaging it away. Even even if you're doing it with a psychotherapeutic approach of with thought or or emotions of some practice, if you pay attention, if the trauma is getting resolved, is because it's actually getting massaged away. And what our device does is it makes that so much easier. Essentially, takes you to that level of energy where you feel melted and kind of liquid and, and uh, less viscous. And then you can actually massage it away. And, uh, and it's quite wonderful in that way. <laughs> how, soon can I, how soon can I get into that machine? Oh, my goodness. So in the ideal world, we will essentially do a, what's called a, an incubator, um, an incubator um, setup for the QRI, where essentially we do that as a startup. Um, that said, if you travel to 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 the Bay Area, I'd be very happy to just have you at my at my place and and try it out. Uh, but but otherwise, Andres, in a couple of years, I, yeah. No, I'm ready to make a special trip in order to do it because <laughs> I'm a you know I'm a therapist by you know that's my primary. And you're talking about a machine that every therapist in the world is going to want to have in their office. In fact, yeah. it, it, if I'm hearing accurately. You're going to make enough money on this machine to fund the other research that you want to do with <laughs> consciousness, because this is a phenomenal thing. And, and people have been working on sound therapy, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years. But now you put it together technolog technologically, it sounds like, so that you can measure it and make it effective. I'm, I'm like, wow. I mean, <laughs> I'm ready to get in my car. I mean, that's it's phenomenal. Is this why you, you look like a happy person because you spend so many hours at this thing? Yeah. <laughs> that, that might be part of it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think, I think obviously the other part is having a, a strong life, life mission. And uh, yes. I also meditate a lot. I do what's called the like Jana meditation, which is very wonderful. H have you how, heard of... How, no, spell it for me, please. J-H-A-N-A. -A, Jana. Jana. Jana, J H A N A. Okay, yeah. I'll do some research on it. Yeah, yeah. So how I mean, how often do you do it? I, I, right now, I, I meditate about like ninety minutes a day. Uh, an I'm hour hoping... and a half every an hour and a half every day of the week. Yeah. <laughs> wow! Wow! What a guy! Oh my <laughs> God! You, you you are some special human being. That's that's phenomenal, sir. 
it's not that, that much compared to, to other people I know. Um, the, the thing that really made it happen, though, is that um, I went to a couple of retreats, specifically Jana retreats. So this is just a very, very useful for the audience and, and for you to know, because like a lot of the way meditation is taught, even the vibe of it. It's almost kind of as a as a chore. It's kind of like, oh, this thing you do for your mental health is kind of like exercise. It's not very pleasant, but you just get through it sort of thing. The whole point of jhana meditation is is actually what you're trying to do from on a moment-to-moment basis. You just figure out how do you improve the sense of well-being in your in your body, in your mind. Essentially, like what kind of micro adjustments of attitude or attention or or, or kind of like the energy, the strength of the energy. What uh, phrases can you say internally? Like, you know, loving kindness phrases. What do you need to do right now to feel a little bit better? And you just, you know, you just follow that algorithm over and over. And at some points, actually very powerful body pleasure starts to arise. And then if that gets strong enough, then you get to what's called the Janus, where actually you're all vibrating in in very pleasant sensations. It's almost kind of being in a in a jacuzzi, or um, some people compare it to an orgasm, um, and and that is very healing. I mean, that's that's one of the things that uh, we emphasize a lot at QRI, which is like pleasure without grasping, without craving, is actually very very healing. Like it's very good to cultivate a sense of body well being, body pleasure, and uh, you just need to undo that programming that a lot of people a lot of people have of like well if it's if if what what, what is it like uh no pain no gain like that's that's not our philosophy at all <laughs> it's not mine either i think that's a bunch of bullshit that, yeah. that, that whole thing i think it comes out of religion and calvinism you know you got to work and etc what do you call the machine that applies the vibrations yeah yeah we the current name we call it lsv which is light sound and vibration a little, a little nod, obviously, to LSD. Um, the first name, which probably is not very viable, it's just a wacky, fun name. We call it the annealotron because it's kind of like an automatic way of doing uh, annealing. And like the whole frame that we use is called a neural annealing. This whole theory of on heightened states of energy, you can essentially melt and undo a lot of your internal stress. Well... If you get into, if you go near that machine every day and do your jhana for ninety minutes every day, we ought to be studying you in terms of your immune system or other subjects, and in in terms of your, you know, what kind of colds you get over time, what kind of problems or non problems you have over time, and what your longevity is, mm-hmm. and the other people in your association, anybody else. Who is doing this? I think we, I hope you know where you're a scientist. You want to you know be taking notes on yourself as a self experimenter because these the combination of these two things. The, I, I I get what you're saying about the jhana meditation. Basically, what you're saying is you're applying your whole self to your whole self for ninety minutes in order to make your whole self as balanced as possible and with as few. Uh, knots and blocks as possible. And you're yeah. using your inner television set to go into the different areas of your body to search out those areas that have those blockages. And then you're working on massaging them mentally in order to unblock them, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I got it. I think I got it. And and then you have the machine then coming in and doing the exact same thing, 
So it's like you've got a technological backup to your own work <laughs> that you're doing. I, it's it's fantastic. I mean, it's really uh, quite impressive, Andres. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I mean, obviously, Is it's you, a uh, team effort, but yes. <laughs> and 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 how many others are are doing this self experiment? I mean, look, I just did. A, I'm going to give you a little background here. Yeah, yeah. I just finished a uh, released a book called Psychedelic Wisdom. It's okay. about people and it, it, it's stories from people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 190 who were doing sub rosa psychedelic self experimentation for 30, 40, and 50 years. Wow. Okay. I'm relating what you're doing now in your 30s to what they started doing in their 30s, but you're doing it with the Jhana and with the LSV machine. And I'm saying 30 years from now, we want to know, well, at least I won't be around. Well, maybe, who knows? I could be 115, but, <laughs> but your data will be extremely important data. And if there are a bunch of you, people, your friends and others who are doing this, it's important information to share with the public, just like hearing from these elders is important information about their self-experimentation with psychedelics. You know, you, you see what I'm saying, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Very good lens. Very good lens. I, I, I actually will keep it in mind and think about it. Yeah. Good. Good. So how are we doing in terms of the original question? Uh, what do we want to have happen in this interview? <laughs> are we succeeding? Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's... Uh... <laughs> Uh, it obviously it's taken a while to unpack a little bit what we do at QRI because it's, uh, it's many facets to it. <laughs> I think you've done a terrific job about talking about the three areas, and we could go into it again at at a later date. I'd like to do another interview with you. I find this to be a very exciting and, and important, as well as <laughs> exciting, very important work. So right now we're at about an hour. I'm going to take a little break here and do a little talking about mind, body, health, and politics. And what I want you to do, please, while I'm talking, is think about, when I come back, what else we want you to be able to talk about and say before we finish the interview. Fantastic. And Okay, terrific. So, uh, gentle uh, listeners uh, and readers, please go to our website, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Our archives with exciting and informative interviews like the one that we're having today with Andres Gomez Emelson are open source. That means you can go to the, the archives in your car, walking along while you're hiking, wherever you want, you know the scene, and listen to the archives. So please do that. And then when you get to that little place where it says subscribe, push the subscribe button because that does something good for us. I don't know what it is that's good, but there's something good when you push on subscribe, so please do that. And then check out my book, Psychedelic Medicine, which is uh, contains interviews with the greatest scientists in the United States on their research with psychedelics. And then the next one, Psychedelic Wisdom, that I was just talking about, uh, which is the interviews with elders about their sub rosa experimentation. And I think maybe you'll enjoy one of both of those books. I've got more coming soon. I'm very excited about uh, Integral Psychedelic Psychotherapy, published by Rutledge, is coming out in a, maybe this week or next week. You can look for that. And uh, my book on sex is coming out in a few months called Freeing Sexuality. That's going to be a lot of fun for you to read. Uh, and it's dedicated to the working women 
of the world, the unsung heroines uh, that we will be talking about in the future. Back to Andres Gomez Elmelson. I think uh, one one very important area uh, we didn't touch upon, maybe I'll just briefly mention, um, which I also think is going to be very, very life-changing, um, is uh, the field... Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I only wanted to say you said you'll briefly mention. I'd like you to lengthily mention. Lengthily mention. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, <laughs> so I I made a I actually had a have a TED TEDx talk TEDx Miami. You can also find it online. I will send you a link. It's a seven minute seven minute talk that I gave last year, um, which touches upon this thing I'm about to mention, which is I believe that you know severe and chronic physical pain can actually be a thing of the past. That there is actually a technology very close by that's going to be as impactful as anesthesia was for surgery, right? Like we, we know that for, for many years, for most of human history, surgery was conducted without anesthesia, right? And obviously that's uh, pretty terrifying. <clears throat> and from the moment it was discovered that nitrous oxide, ether, and chloroform could actually, you know, be used for anesthesia. To the moment it were used for anesthesia, it took 50 years, right? Like there was 50 years of, I guess, cultural inertia of people not believing this is possible um, until there was a big demonstration, you know, in 1847, I believe, um, of a surgery actually conducted with, with anesthesia. Um, well, there is this class of drugs that there's currently close to zero, zero research on at least in academia, but there's a lot of really good leads, which is called anti-tolerance drugs. So essentially, the problem with using something like a morphine for chronic pain is that you habituate to it, right? Like you, you get a tolerance and um, it stops working as well, and then you're dependent on it. And may, in some cases, you may get even stronger pains after a while because of not to, uh, what's- Not to mention that it causes constipation and depression. Yes, yes, exactly. It also does that. Uh, absolutely. So, so essentially, um, tiny doses of ibogaine, you know, which is used for kind of like heroin addicts um, in, in large doses, and it's a crazy psychedelic. Uh, I haven't tried it myself, but like I, I know it's a very profound experience. Um, in tiny doses, it is not psychedelic, but it seems to be capable of reversing tolerance. Uh, to to opioid medications uh, to such an extent that you know somebody who is on morphine may all of a sudden not be depressed, not be constipated, but then on top of that, the pain relieving effects work just just better, and and they can take like you know ten percent or one percent as much as they, they used to take, and and the pain actually goes away. So what I'm getting at is, I mean, an ibogaine is a very dirty drug. It has a lot of other receptor affinities, maybe are not ideal, but in general, I, I suspect there's going to be a paradigm shift when we figure out how to do anti-tolerance correctly so that, you know, the painkiller medication never stops working and it doesn't have the same side effects. And yeah, that, that to me is good. I think that's as significant as anesthesia. And yeah, again, also QRI's <laughs> qualia research is one of the maybe the only place in the world where we are advocates for doing more research in this area. What stands out for me as well, Andres, is that you're a man who is deeply concerned about human suffering and the human condition. You're concerned about it with regard to headaches. You're concerned about it with regard to what we put into robots 
you're concerned about it with regard to tolerance and pain, and uh, and that is one of your uh, foci uh, in your life, and I commend you for that. It's a privilege uh, to <laughs> know you for that, and uh, I look forward to uh, to more interviews with you. And uh, if I'm not being too pushy or demanding, if you want to invite me down to your lab to get next to that machine, I will <laughs> jump it. I'm in my vehicle and on my way because it's uh, one of the most exciting things I've heard about. It's the kind of thing that I, as you can tell by my thinking about robots and consciousness, it's the kind of stuff I sit and think about. But to be able to meet a kindred spirit who's actually doing something with it is, uh, is really very exciting. So thank you for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I appreciate your time and energy. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. No, I've had a lot of fun. And uh, thank you so much for the outlet. It's been a wonderful interview. <laughs> and, and thank you for yeah all the work that you uh, do. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, my, my, my privilege. And thank you all for, for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you that we do broadcast at 9 o'clock every Tuesday morning as well as having the archives open so you can listen anytime you want. And until next time, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is indeed worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hi, Eva Cheska here again. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and we encourage you to share it with others. All of our programs are archived and are open source, which means that you can listen to them anytime, anywhere, anyplace through our website, free of charge. We also invite you to check out my dad's books, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca, Psychedelic Wisdom, The Astonishing Rewards of Psychedelic Substances, and Integral Psychedelic Therapy, The Non-Ordinary Art of Psycho-Spiritual Healing, co-edited. Stay tuned for a new episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics every week. And if you want advance notice of our upcoming guests, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Until next time, this is Evacheska DeAngelis wishing you good health.